Friends, grace and peace to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Back when I was a pastor in Denver, on any given Sunday, the back pew of the church uh, was occupied by anywhere from two to seven or eight men who had come to know our congregation through our weekly outreach ministry with the homeless. Having become connected to our congregation through a clean pair of socks or a granola bar or a hot cup of coffee on a cold winter's day, they had come to believe that they belonged there, that this was their church. And indeed, they did. And it was. One Sunday in particular, we had a new friend come and join us. His name was Marco. I had met Marco at the uh, ministry during the week, but this was the first time Marco had come to worship. Now, Marco, like many of his friends, did not own a watch and had a very vague relationship with time, which meant he was a, a little bit late to church that day. And by a little bit late to church, I mean Marco barely made it to take communion, like 48 minutes into the service, right? But Marco, even though he had been raised Catholic, Marco knew that we had invited him and he loved being invited and so he came forward to receive communion. Now, in that place, we received communion by either intinction or common cup. That is, you came and knelt at the rail, and you got a piece of bread from the pastor, and then there was one chalice that had non-alcoholic wine, and you could either dip in it and eat it, or you could eat your bread and then drink from the cup. Either was fine. But Marco hadn't been there in time to hear the instructions about how we receive communion. And on that day, we had a brand new deacon. She had never served before. She was a 13-year-old girl named Amber. And she was really nervous about serving communion. Can you see what's about to happen here? So Marco came forward, and he knelt at the rail, and he got a piece of bread, and he ate that piece of bread. And then along came Amber with the cup. And he looked at her, and he had no idea what to do. And he looked a little hesitant for a moment. But then he had a brilliant idea. In his hand, he had a handful of loose change, money that he had garnered from uh, panhandling the night before. Knowing that this was part of what we do here, he took that handful of change and he plopped it right down into the chalice, splashing wine all over the place. The dirtiest coins you have. This is about the most unsanitary thing I've ever seen, okay? And Amber freaked out. And so she elbowed me, and she said, Pastor, what am I supposed to do with this? And I said, I don't know. (laughs) I was new. Now, thankfully, Marco was the last one in line, which meant that all that were left to commune were myself, Amber, and the organist, and we all just decided that on that day, bread would suffice. (laughs) I learned a couple things that day. The first was that we needed a second cup. Always have a backup plan. But more importantly, I learned about stewardship. You see, I grew up thinking that stewardship was about how the church pays its bills. Marco gave that day. And you know what? All of his other friends did too. Every time those men came to worship... They always, without fail, put something in the offering plate. Just a a few coins. Men who spent the majority of their life on street corners and the doors of grocery stores 
asking for food and money. Every week, they put something in the plate. And in all the years that I was in ministry there, if you added up all that those men gave, I don't think we could find a single bill that it enabled us to pay. I don't think any of the bills we paid in that church could ever have been paid by what those guys gave. And as the world judges value, as the world counts what things are worth, what they gave didn't matter. But it mattered immensely. It mattered immensely. I mean, not least of which, because those guys, if you consider what they made each week through begging, statistically, percentage-wise, relative to their income, they were our top givers. They were the most generous people we had in that congregation. But way beyond that, beyond their generosity or what bills we were or were not able to pay with what they gave, that's not what mattered. What matters was that they had found a place where they belonged, where they were noticed and cared for and greeted with the same peace of Christ that everyone else was greeted with and fed the same meal that everyone else was fed with and told the same holy words of blessing that everyone else received There in that place, they belonged. In a world in which most people never even noticed them. They belonged. And that is what stewardship is all about. That's what stewardship... Because stewardship, friends, is just a fancy way of saying what it looks like to follow Jesus. And what it looks like to follow Jesus is to belong to God with all that we are. Which commandment is the greatest, they asked. I mean, there are 613, after all. A little prioritization can be helpful. Which commandments are the most important? Jesus says, you've heard. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is your God. The Lord is one. You shall love that Lord, that God, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then, if you love God, and you know that every single person in the world bears on her face the image of the one who made her, that is, bears the image of God, then if you love God, you will love your neighbor and yourself. Because you can't have one without the other. Everything else flows from that. Love God and love your neighbor because your neighbor bears the image of God to you. Everything else flows from that. Now it's important to note, and we've talked about this before, that in Jesus' time and culture, love was not an emotional word. It wasn't a feelings word. Love was not the gushy, warm feeling that you get when you hold your girlfriend's hand for the first time. That had nothing to do with it. What love was, was a cultural word. It was about attachment. It was about belonging. If you said you loved someone, what that meant was you were bound to that person, that you were attached to that person, that they belonged to you, that your life was bound up in theirs. 
So when Jesus says, quoting scripture, when God says, love the Lord your God, it's not about feeling warm and fuzzy about God. It's about living your life as though you know deep in your bones that everything you are and everything you have belongs to God. That God made you, God claimed you, God loves you, God remakes you each and every day, and you belong to God. And because you belong to God, you belong to all those who bear God's face, which means you belong to all of your neighbors, and they to you. And you can't get out of it, no matter how hard you try. As the great Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. once said, we are inextricably bound up in an inescapable network of mutuality. What happens to one happens to all. That is to say, you belong to your neighbor, and your neighbor belongs to you, because together you belong to God. And that, that is what makes the difference. That's what love looks like. It's about being embedded in, immersed in the story of a God who would do anything for you. And having done everything for you, then calls you to do for your neighbor. So what does that look like? Well, it is not a coincidence, and I think it is crucially important, that this teaching about love of God and love of neighbor is followed up almost immediately by Jesus sitting down and noticing somebody. He looks up and he sees a woman, a widow, who has two tiny little coins to rub together, barely worth a cent. And she puts them in the box of the temple treasury. And Jesus says, guys, did you see what just happened? Did you notice what she did? This woman has nothing Nothing at all. In fact, what tiny little bit she had, she just gave away. And she has literally nothing left. For all we know, she's going to go home and lay down to die. Now, if you're like me, you probably grew up hearing this story as a story about stewardship, about sacrificial giving, right? About what it means to give until it hurts to give to God or to the work of God. And I have come to believe that that's not what this story is about at all. I don't know, actually. I don't don't think there's a real clear way to tell in the text if Jesus thought it was a good idea or a bad idea for her to give those coins to the temple. I don't know how Jesus felt about paying the temple tax, which is what that was about. He could have been in favor. He could have been opposed. I don't really know, but I know one thing. I know that he was furious. That he lived in a world in which they had a neighbor, a woman, who was widowed and had literally nothing to live on. How is it possible that we live in a world in which we have neighbors who barely have two pennies to rub together, who live so close to utter abject poverty, hunger, and death, and no one 
notices. What kind of a world is that? It's a world in which people stand up with long robes and say long prayers, and yet they devour widows' houses. I think stewardship, that is discipleship, that is following Jesus, that is belonging to God, I think what stewardship ultimately is about is about God caring about everything that we do and everything that we have and what we do with it. I think what stewardship is about is a God who cares what you put in the offering plate, but cares even more, much, much more, about what you do with the rest of your life and the rest of what you think you own. Because, folks, we live in a world in which we are inextricably bound up in an inescapable network of mutuality with our neighbors, and thanks be to God for that, but what that also means is that we are deeply connected to an utterly broken system that devours widows' houses, that leaves Marco to wander the streets, not knowing where his next meal will come from, that has children fleeing warfare and no one taking them in. That's the broken world in which we are also embedded. That is the world that Jesus died to save. The world that God calls us to turn upside down. And that's what the cross and resurrection do. You see, there at the cross, we see one who also had nothing left to live on and gave all that he had, even his life itself, so that the world might be disrupted and overturned, so that we might never again see in the face of a stranger anything other than a beloved friend to whom God, whom God loves and to whom we belong. You see, what the cross does is it forces us to see that that poor widow is our sister, our mother, our aunt, that Marco is our brother and our son, that these people belong to us and we to them. And together, together God is working for a world in which none of us will hunger, in which all will be fed and loved and noticed and have a place to belong. And that's what we are about in this place. That's what this is all about. You see, stewardship is not about paying bills. We have bills to pay, and by your faithfulness and generosity, we pay them. And thanks be to God for what you do to make it possible for us to be the church. But folks, we don't live to pay bills. That's not why we exist here. We could have a million dollars and look totally sustainable on paper. But if we're not doing what we have been called to do, it doesn't matter at all. What matters in this place is that we gather around these gifts of bread and wine, God's own love poured out. We gather at that bath where we were literally immersed, washed into a family of belonging, where we greet one another all of one another with Christ's peace, not ours, where we join with one another in prayer for each other and for the world. And in all of these things, 
we become more and more embedded in a story of love. Love as belonging. Love as being rooted and connected to the source of all life and love. And sharing in that together with all those whom we meet. That's what God has called us to, and that's what God has begun and what God will finish in the gift of Jesus Christ. And I am convinced that the more we gather for this meal, the more we share with one another in the presence of the one who loves us and longs for nothing more than for us and for all creation to be loved back to life, the more we do that, the less we will be embedded in that world that devours widows' houses. The more God's love will be outpoured in a world that is longing to be overturned by God's amazing grace. And so come to the table where you and Marco and all of God's children belong. Be fed by the one who gave everything so that you and all might truly live. And be thankful. Be thankful with all that you are. And thanks be to God for that. Amen.